to the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. So glad to have you with me for another episode. Today, we are talking about why we have four Gospels in the Bible. I don't know how often you have thought about why we have four Gospels. Why not five? Why not three? Why not just one? If you spend any time on YouTube or if you have come across uh, skeptical people, uh, you will know that, well, actually, probably the best place you go to is the History Channel because that seems to be where you find this kind of idea of skepticism, skepticism is that um, we're missing a bunch of Gospels. We're missing, like, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter. And essentially, the mindset is that there was this grand conspiracy happen, happening during the um, structure and acceptance of books of the Bible to where some essentially didn't make the cut. And among those that didn't make the cut uh, were what we call the uh, special Gnostic writings of uh, gospel accounts. And I mentioned uh, two more popular ones, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter. Um, this mindset, while we might not accept it ourselves, you should know that um, a lot of people, even in more of the mainstream Christianity, um, may be under the impression that the gospel accounts which we have are only telling part of the story. And if you're really interested enough, you should not only spend time reading these four gospels, but you should go out and find all these additional ones that, that didn't make the cut. Now, what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm framing the situation um, in a way that I don't agree with, but a way that, that is prevalent in certain circles of Christianity. It really goes to a much bigger issue of whether or not the Bible is inspired and infallible, and if we indeed have the right books in here, um, not too many and not too little. And so that's a whole nother issue um, that we could spend an entire episode dealing with. But I wanted to bring up this issue because probably the best way that we can go forward for understanding why we have four Gospels, why we have the four Gospels that we do have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we can understand why we have them by um, addressing issues that frame, frame this whole idea in a bad way. And so, when we think about the four Gospels, uh, one author says that we have the four Gospels because they give us a deeper, more profound understanding of Christology. That word Christology, think about that ology idea that we tack on uh, to uh, so many words, the idea of, of a, a study of or a system of. So Christology be a, the study of Christ or a doctrine of Christ that's being uh, articulated to us. And so he argues that this Christology, our doctrine of Christ, what we believe about Jesus Christ, uh, has a deeper, more profound understanding given to us when we have these four Gospels, um, in contrast to if we only had one or if we only had three of the four. And this is an important way of really dealing with issues that really shouldn't be at the forefront of our minds when it comes to the gospel. Because if we think about the purpose that God has 
for giving us Matthew, for giving us Mark, for giving us Luke, and for giving us John. We think about God's purpose in that as communicating to us a rich, full-orbed doctrine of Christ. Then we don't have to deal with a whole bunch of issues as to this information is not in this one. This one gives more information than this one. This one leaves out this miracle. This one mentions uh, another miracle, or it, you know, insert whatever kind of uh, question that you might have there. Um, the Apostle John says towards the end of his gospel account, John 21, that he says by way of a figure of speech uh, that. If he were to have recorded all of the things that Jesus did, he says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all of the books. And so what John argues um, a chapter prior to that is he says, here's why I wrote this gospel. Because I'm not trying to give an exhaustive account of everything that I saw Jesus do or everything that people talked about him doing. Instead, this is John twenty thirty one. He says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So he has a salvific purpose. He wants us to understand who Christ is and the material that he gives to us in the gospel of John is to present that argument to present that claim of who Jesus is and what the effect of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, what effect that has as we believe. As we believe, we have eternal life in him, believing who he is and being in agreement with the claims that John is making to us in the gospel. Now, what this does is it shifts the conversation immediately. If we are to take John at his word, and if we are to assume that this kind of mindset is also there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then it automatically shifts the conversation away from this idea of a competition between the four Gospels. Uh, like, which one has the best information? Which one has the most profound healings recorded? Which one is the longest? Which one is the most comprehensive? Which one is the most concise? Right? These are certainly things that we could use to characterize the Gospels, but they're never meant to be pitted against each other. And the main reason for that is because God gave us all four of them. And so he wants us to understand and appreciate all four of these Gospels. So the, the question that we really should be asking when it has to do with these four Gospels is, what does this Gospel uniquely teach me about the person and work of Christ? Okay, so that is probably one of the most important things that we could be asking, because when we ask that, we're immediately shedding away the notion of competition or rivalry between them, and we are really poised to take great advantage of the content that's presented to us in all four Gospels. Okay, so what God wants us to do as we are reading these is to understand something unique about Jesus. And so when we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they're writing from their own personal experiences, they're writing from their exposure to Christianity, 
we could really say this about all four of them. We could say that Matthew is redeemed from his vocational betrayal of Israel to Rome, because remember, he's a, he's a tax collector. He's seen as an enemy uh, to his fellow um, Israelites, because as he's working for the government, so he's a government worker here, a tax collector for Rome, um, he is an outcast. And uh, historical accounts will say that tax collectors used uh, the most uh, wicked and uh, divisive tactics uh, necessary in order to get money from people. Their job was to get money from people. And so you think about uh, who we fear in our 21st century uh, economic construct. We fear the IRS. Uh, Matthew is an IRS agent, if you will, and and so he's not very popular, and nobody that that we know uh, would want to brag to us about the fact that they work for the IRS because it's not necessarily a popular place to be. Um, but Jesus redeems him from that. Jesus calls him to to follow after him, and he leaves that profession behind. That he's redeemed from this betrayal of his people, as it were. And so what he does is he focuses a lot on Jesus' redemptive motif to the Jews. And he also focuses a lot on the passages where Jesus rebukes the hypocritical self-righteous. Think about how Jesus deals with the Pharisees. Uh, think about the, the woe unto you passages that you see um, uniquely in Matthew. You don't see him in the other biblical accounts, as I'm thinking especially of uh, Matthew chapter 23, which is a unique um, instance that you only see in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is just laying it on to the uh, Pharisees and calling them hypocrites. He sees them basically as the true tax collectors, because while Matthew worked for Rome and was an outcast to his people, who those who were still held in high esteem uh, were the scribes and the Pharisees. They were in the positions of prestige. And Jesus basically turns that against them and saying, you're not in a place of prestige. You're the greatest hypocrites and evildoers there are because you're so self-righteous and you oppress the people. And that spoke to Matthew because it was so much of the kind of dynamic that he was in as a tax collector before Jesus redeemed him. We skip to Mark. What does Mark tell us about Jesus explicitly? Well, Mark is a, a sidekick of the Apostle Peter, by all historical accounts. And so, who do we see prevalent in the Gospel of Mark? Peter. Uh, historically, it's said that during Peter's missionary work into Rome, that as he was leaving, it was requested that he have a Gospel account uh, in written form given to them, maybe a lot more concise than what was included in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, historically, you have Mark as the sidekick and basically presenting his Gospel under the authority of Peter the Apostle. Uh, that's at least the historical notion of how the Gospel of Mark came about. And so you see in the content that Peter is regularly present in the events. And it's interesting that though he's regularly present, the emphasis is placed on his failures, not his victories. 
And that makes sense because when we think about Peter's uh, reflection, think after uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. Think of Peter after receiving the Holy Spirit. Think of his gratitude. Think of the profound things that he writes in First and Second Peter of our suffering for Christ and following after Christ, the example given to us of what it means uh, to be a suffering servant uh, to the world on behalf of Christ, that this idea truly humbled Peter. And so he wants us to understand um, how not to do things. He wants us to understand and learn from his past mistakes. So it makes sense that he would uh, see to it that the content given in the Gospel of Mark uh, paints a realistic view of Peter rather than a heroic view. And certainly Roman Catholicism uh, has to do something with that because uh, Peter, as the so-called Pope, uh, doesn't look too great in the Gospel of Mark. And if, in fact, it was uh, written under the authority uh, and, and from the recollection of Peter, who was an eyewitness of all the events, um, you have to ask the question, why in the world would he want to present himself in that way if he is this pope uh, that Roman Catholicism says? But that's another story for another time. Luke, we get to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the sidekick of the Apostle Paul. So uh, Mark, the sidekick of the Apostle Peter. Luke, the sidekick of the Apostle Paul. I'm using uh, superhero terms here, sidekick, and just take that with a grain of salt. It's the best way I know to describe it. Uh, and so. Paul's missionary efforts, you think about what you see in the book of Acts, which is a companion book to the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes essentially a two-volume set, his Gospel and then the Acts of the Apostles. They should be read together, and you can see the flow of the two arguments. But Paul is the standard bearer of world missions, of world evangelism of going to the ends of the earth, traveling thousands of miles, getting the gospel out. And Paul actually reflects on this in his letters, I think Colossians, I'm thinking of specifically here, that the effort of the gospel going out has essentially reached all of the known world, uh, all of the Roman Empire, at least, um, at, at the time of his life. And so what do you see in the Gospel of Luke? Well, you see the global redemption of Jesus presented, that he's the Savior not only of the Jews, but the Savior of the world. And this is true to Luke's own experience of the gospel, because Luke is right alongside Paul on these uh, missionary crusades of going to indigenous peoples, of going to uh, the noble, of going to the outcasts, and seeing uh, Jesus Christ's work of salvation uh, really continue to expand all across people groups and places. And so Luke really wants to emphasize in his gospel that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And there's this global dynamic to, uh, to the gospel. And then finally, we have John. John is uh, exposed to the exalted Christ when we read uh, the book of Revelation. John is essentially banished uh, and spending his time um, as a prisoner, as a suffering for his faith in Jesus Christ. And he's exposed to Jesus in this vision. And he 
sees this glorified Christ and falls down as though dead. Now, this is in the book of Revelation, not the Gospel of John. But John has this heavenly view of Jesus. He has this profound interaction that the one whom we would look at in his glory and fall down as though no life were left in us because of the vision of his glory, the vision of his holiness. Just like Isaiah, who sees the vision of God's glory in Isaiah 6 and falls down as though dead, just like uh, the parents of Samson and, and, and so on and so forth uh, throughout the Bible when an appearance of God happens that they, they fall down, they don't know what to do. Moses uh, exposed to the glory of God. The same thing again and again, this pattern of just being awestruck by who God is, that John interacts with that heavenly view of Jesus along with the fact that he came to us in the incarnation. He, came, he comes to us in the flesh. And John says that this word became flesh. You see, you read the prologue to his gospel. You read John chapter 1, verse 1, and read those first 18 verses or so, and you see how caught up John is with this glorified Christ. Well, this makes sense because what John is doing here, the idea is that John writes his gospel account basically decades after we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke historically. And John writes his account um, somewhat to help with the false teachings that were starting to circulate. False teachings such as, well, Jesus was just a heavenly phantom, as it were. If you've seen uh, the new uh, Star Wars trilogy, I'm not asking if you like it because that's a that's a huge debate. But if you've seen it, and you've seen uh, what is it, episode seven, no, episode eight, where Luke uh, fights Kylo Ren, but he actually isn't fighting Kylo Ren because it's this force projection. He's just kind of a a phantom. He's a hologram almost. Um, that that's what Jesus is like. He's not actually a real person. He just seems to be. And so what you have during the end of John's life is this false teaching that the incarnation is not true or that Jesus wasn't really man. Yes, he was God, but he wasn't really man. And so John is arguing throughout his gospel both for the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And once you understand that argument, you can see it all over the place in the gospel. And John wants this, uh, wants to maintain this historic doctrine of the incarnation. He wants to maintain it because he sees the gospel itself as being at stake. Um, if we uh, cast aside this view that Jesus is truly God, but truly man as well. And so when we see these four Gospels kind of with that uh, certain Christological framework, then we understand that Gospels are not biographies or autobiographies. They're not history books. Now, listen, because... I don't mean to say the Gospels are not historically accurate or the Gospels are not 
biographical to the authors. But what I'm saying is, the Gospels are not following the norms of what you would see in a biography or in a historical treatment of a certain time frame. And because of that, the Gospels are not and never pretend to be strictly chronological from beginning to end. This is why sometimes the events don't match up exactly between the Gospels. This is why sometimes Luke will provide more information about something than what you see in Matthew or Mark. This is why John is able to write the first half of his gospel spanning a few years and the last half of his gospel spanning just a few days. There's no certain rule that these writers are trying to follow in terms of chronological or uh, a an exhaustive amount of details. Instead, their purpose is Christological, or we might say thematic in nature. And these themes that they're giving to us are not contradictory. These certain angles of the diamond of the glory of Christ that they're showing us are meant to be supplemental to one another. They're certainly... um, the idea when Luke writes his gospel account to Theophilus, uh, presumably he knows about uh, Matthew or he knows about Mark, but he's writing with a specific aim to Theophilus. You read the prologue uh, to the Gospel of Luke or to the book of Acts, and you can see that he has a certain aim, a certain argument that he's trying to give uh, with a historical tradition already founded. Or John, towards the end of his life, knows that these other Gospels are circulating, but he writes his with a certain thematic purpose. We can make this argument again and again, but the point is, we should never see these Gospel accounts as needing to be um, pitted against one another. And if we understand that the thematic purpose is the big idea, then suddenly when we look at these other supposed writings of such as the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, that the issue with those is not that we have information that we need to get into the Bible, but yet we don't have it, but that the basic notion of what a Gospel is is completely betrayed in those extra-biblical accounts. You start to see real contradictions taking place when you read those. You start to see the historical development and acceptance of those books as really shaky uh, compared to the validity of the four Gospels that we have. We start to see that those extra-biblical accounts uh, start to diminish uh, the arguments that are made in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you could really uh, start to read or, or maybe find other videos that deal with why those extra-biblical accounts should not be viewed as inspired by God and, in fact, should be viewed as contradictory and later, much later, uh, additions that were trying to be slipped into historical Christianity uh, from the Gnosticism uh, that was trying to creep in and distort what Christianity was. And you can even see uh, the beginnings of that uh, that, that John is dealing with uh, towards the end of, of his life when he's arguing for the Incarnation. So there's a lot of things to consider with, with the four Gospels, but 
we might say that the reason that we have the four Gospels is because they give us a full-orbed account of Christology. Now, we aren't saved by having four Gospels. We're saved by what the Gospels tell us about Jesus Christ, and certainly all four of them in their own right are sufficient for our salvation. But since we live in a time to where we have our whole Bible uh, historically handed off from generation to generation from the time of its writing to today, that we have all of them, we should certainly make use of all of them. Because as you study uh, the Gospels, you'll start to see and start to appreciate uh, the significance of each one individually. And once you read all four of them, you're essentially looking at a story from four different vantage points that gives you a much uh, fresher and, and much more substantial appreciation for our Savior. And so I want to encourage you that the Gospels really aren't all that long if you wanted to sit down and try to read one in uh, one sitting. If you have time carved away uh, to sit down and read one Gospel, I'd like to challenge you to try to complete all four Gospels in the course of the next seven days. Now, I'm being a little uh, extra fair to you here because uh, days are seven, uh, or seven days in a week, not four, and we only have four Gospels. And so I'm giving you basically three cheat days or three days to catch up if you can't happen to read one in one sitting. But I encourage you, maybe you've never read all four Gospels. Maybe you've read parts of all four Gospels, but if you've ever sat down to start in Matthew chapter 1 and work all the way to chapter 28, or Mark and work all the way to chapter 16, or do that with Luke and John as well, that you'll start to see the unique argument that's being made. When you look at it from the perspective of an entire book as it, as it is and as it's meant to be understood, you'll start to see this big idea being presented to you as the reader, as the audience. And you'll have a greater appreciation. And when you do that with all four of them, then you'll really start to see what makes each one unique and why each one is so helpful to us in our Christian lives. So that's my encouragement to you. I'm going to provide some um, extra literature and maybe some other things to consider about these four Gospels as articles on, uh, the, on the Better Bible Reading website. And I'm going to do that over the next few days. So if you're listening to this or watching it, um, by the time this releases, I'll start putting out some more uh, supplemental material about these four Gospels. I want you to make use of those. Read them. They'll, they'll be short articles, but to try to help you get a better understanding of some of the dynamics in the Gospels. But the most important thing that I want you to do is just read all four of them. Read all four of them. See what you appreciate the most. And I don't think it's a sin. Uh, to say that you like one of them the most, just don't make the mistake of saying that you don't like one of them because they are inspired by God and they're for our good and our salvation. Well, thank you so much for listening and watching the Better Bible Reading podcast. Head on over to betterbiblereading.com to get that supplemental material, and I'll be glad to have served you in that way by you taking advantage of that. But enjoy the rest of your day, and thank you so much.